I want you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, John chapter 5 and uh, John chapter 14. John chapter 5 and John chapter 14. We'll start in the fifth chapter of John. While you're turning there, let me, uh, uh, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole uh, um, account of the man that was healed at the pool of Bethesda. But um, the Bible says that there was a, a crippled man there by the pool of Bethesda. And the pool of Bethesda was a place of healing. Everybody understood that. The Bible tells us that at a certain time, nobody knew when, but on occasion, an angel would come down and trouble the water. And then the first person that got into the water after it had been troubled by the angel, I, I, I don't know exactly how that worked. I don't know if they saw the angel, if they just saw the water moving and jumped in. I, I don't know how that worked. But anyway, first one in got healed. And uh, so Jesus goes by there and he sees all these people. Uh, the Bible says there are five porches full. We don't know exactly what the, the porch full means. But, um, uh, but apparently there were five porches. Tradition tells us that, uh, that some rich man, uh, recognizing that this was a place where the sick and the halt and the lame would go, uh, waiting for the troubling of the water, waiting for the angel to come down and trouble the water, some rich man took pity on them and uh, created some kind of shade structure, lean-tos, something, that, um, uh, that would alleviate the, uh, the inconvenience of being in the hot sun all day long, uh, all day every day for some of them, I guess. That um, uh, and, and provide some relief for him. And uh, so anyway, Jesus finds this one guy and he asks him, wilt thou be made whole? And the guy says, I don't have any man. In other words, he has an obstacle to receiving from what God uh, provides on occasion through this troubling of the water, the angel coming down and troubling the water. So he said, sir, I have no man. It's interesting that, uh, that the Holy Ghost gives us an account of somebody that recognized that if he's going to receive from God, he's got to have somebody to help him. And so Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, you can see that there's no faith being exercised on the part of the individual. The man uh, is, is only identifying what the problem is. Somebody gets down quicker than me into the water, and I'm, you know, there's not a numbering system apparently. You know, the next one in, you know, a line orderly or anything like that, the, the youngest, quickest, fastest one to the water is the one that gets it. And so he says, people are quicker than me. I don't have anybody to put me into the water quicker than anybody else gets in, and so I miss out every time. And Jesus says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man rises up and takes, off, takes his bed. And the Bible says that this was on the Sabbath day. Now, we want to pick up the, um, uh, the story in, um, well, let's, let's just start in verse 13. And he, this is after Jesus healed him, and he that was healed, the crippled man, wist not. That means he did not know who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. So you can see that the man hadn't heard anything about Jesus. The man's not talking to Jesus from the standpoint of, hey, I've heard about you. I've heard you're healing the sick. I've heard that you're helping people. Can you help me? He didn't know who Jesus was. He, uh, we don't have any record that he knew anything about Jesus or his healing ministry or anything that he was doing there in Jerusalem or anywhere else. So he didn't know who Jesus was, and Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. They had already questioned him. Who did this to you? And he said, I don't know. He wasn't aware of Jesus, wasn't aware who he was or anything else. So he went back and he told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore, verse 16, did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. They're not against what he did. They're against when he did it. But Jesus answered them, notice verse 17, Jesus answered them 
and said these words. He said, my father worketh here too, and I work. Now, one translation says it this way, and the, the original language brings this out because the, the tense of the words that are used here is uh, something to this effect. My father worketh hitherto even now. In other words, he's saying, my father's at work in the earth, and I work. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, that's rule number one that you can't do, but that he also said that God was his father. When he said, my father works, and so I do too. My father's at work in the earth, and so am I. Because when he said that God was his father, they considered that Jesus making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself. Now, their problem is, their, their complaint, uh, other than Jesus breaking the Sabbath, they breaking their rules on the Sabbath. And he didn't break on the, God's rule for the Sabbath. He broke the Jews' rules for the Sabbath. If Jesus had been a lawbreaker, a breaker of the law of Moses, then he wouldn't have been a righteous sacrifice or a holy sacrifice. He'd have been a sinner just like you and me. But he broke their rules. And so their concern is when he's doing what he's doing, number one, and then number two, the fact that he said God was his father. They considered that Jesus making himself equal with God, raising himself up to a position that doesn't belong to man, in other words. But Jesus answers and says, no, I'm not talking about me. I'm not saying anything about me. The son can do nothing of himself. It's not me because I'm special or anything like that. In other words, Jesus is not claiming to be the son of God, even though he was. He's not saying the crippled man was healed at the pool of Bethesda for the same reason that all the other people are being healed in my ministry. And that is because I'm the son of God and you haven't figured that out yet. Instead, he says, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father doing. Please notice that phrase. The son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not making up my own mind about what I want to do. I'm not picking and choosing what I want. I'm not choosing some to be healed and some to to stay sick. I'm not the one that decides the miracles that will take place. I'm not the one making choices or decisions about what is done. I'm only doing what I see my father do. Now, can I ask you a question? How does Jesus see his father doing anything? Is God up in heaven healing the sick? Well, when did any sick get to heaven? That can't be what he's saying. He can't be saying that at all. What is he saying then? He's saying very simply this. What you see me do is what I know the will of the Father to do is. Now, if we stopped right there, and we won't, but if we stopped right there, we could take other scriptures where it said Jesus healed all that were sick. In Matthew eight sixteen, for example, to full, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. That's Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. We could say right then that since Jesus healed all that were sick, since Jesus turned nobody away, we could say right then that Jesus is identifying that he sees his father. In other words, he sees the character and the nature of his father. He knows that it's the will of God to heal all that are sick. Now, where did the church come up with the idea that God's picking winners and losers? Where did the church come up with the idea that God heals some but not all? Jesus healed all that were sick to fulfill what the scripture said 
about the Messiah. But Jesus said, I'm not doing these works of myself. I'm doing them because I see my father doing them. In other words, if you'll allow me to say it this way, you judge it for yourself to see if it fits. He's saying, I do what I know is the character and the will of my father to have done. I'll prove it to you. The son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do. For whatsoever things he doeth, the father doeth. These also do the son likewise. In other words, he's saying there's not one thing that I do, there's not one thing that I say that's not the will of God to be done. Verse 20, for the father loveth the son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. In other words, he's saying the reason that I see what my father does is because he loves me. And he's going to show me even greater things than these. Now, again, how's Jesus seeing them? Is Jesus looking over into heaven and watching God do this stuff? Folks, God's not doing miracles in heaven. What purpose would there be to do miracles in heaven, especially healing works and healing miracles? There's nobody sick in heaven. But that uh, uh, confirms the things that we're talking about because you remember Jesus in teaching his disciples to pray. One of the parts of that he prayed is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is there anybody sick in heaven? Jesus said to pray an old covenant prayer, not even a prayer that's filled with the the authority in his name. He didn't tell them to pray in his name. That wasn't available to them then. But he said, pray like this. Pray that the will of God would be done in the earth, even as it is in heaven. What does that mean? That means it's the will of God. The will of God is always done in heaven because there's no resistance, no hindrance to it whatsoever. Why isn't the will of God always done here on the earth? Because of hindrances, because of obstacles. In many cases, it's the obstacle of unbelief. But certainly we could recognize that the devil is a hindrance and an obstacle to the will of God. The devil's whole purpose is to to thwart and derail the will of God here on the earth. He does that through trying to deceive people. He does that through circumstances, throwing circumstances or problems up in in front of people to make them think that what the Bible says about God is not true. But Jesus says, I only do what I see my father do. Where did he see his father do this stuff? Do you want the answer? He saw it the same place that you and I see it, and that's in the word. The word is the revealed will of God, both Old Testament and New Testament. The Bible is progressive revelation, which means we see more in the New Testament that identifies the will of God than we can see in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, healing was a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Part of being redeemed from the curse of the law through the work of Jesus was being redeemed from sickness. Deuteronomy 28 lists all kinds of sicknesses that we're redeemed from and then concludes in chapter 28, Deuteronomy 28, verse 61, by saying also every other sickness and disease not named in this book. You're redeemed from that too. So where do we see the will of God displayed? Through the word. When Jesus said, I'm only doing the things that I see my father do, he's saying, I've been made aware of the character and the nature of God. Now, I've got some differing opinions on some of this stuff from uh, from other people. I don't believe that Jesus remembered his time in heaven when he came to the earth. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we were. The Bible says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. I don't see how in the world Jesus could endure the same temptations as you and me if he had uh, knowledge or memory 
of the time that he spent in heaven from the beginning of creation or from the beginning including the creation with God the Father I got to tell you if I had first hand knowledge of um, being with God in heaven prior to being here on the earth having been the one the agent of the creation itself I don't think I'd ever have any trouble with the devil would you? If we could just see clearly over into heaven and see what things are going on there now. If we could just see God sitting on the throne. If we could see the power and the authority. Literally get an eye open picture of the authority and the power that's in the name of Jesus. Would you have any problem with the devil? Apparently not. Paul prayed that our eyes would be open so that we'd see just exactly that. Why? So that we wouldn't have any problem with the devil here on the earth. And we had accomplished the plan and the purpose and the will of God for our lives. So I don't see how Jesus could have any memory of those things. Now, that's just me. Not everybody agrees with that. As a matter of fact, most people will disagree with that from what I understand. But I don't see how it's possible. Otherwise, how could Jesus be tempted in all points like as we are? How could Jesus be tempted with the, the knowledge of the unseen or the lack of knowledge of the unseen if he had memories of being in heaven with God prior to coming to the earth and being born of a virgin? See where I'm coming from on that? Now, you may not agree with that, and, and that's fine. It, uh, don't lose your salvation over it. It's, it's not a... It's not a point of, um, uh, should be a point of, should not be a point of contention one way or the other. But when I try to identify with Jesus, when the Bible tells me that he was a man just like us, that he was a human being just like us, then that means he would have had to have the same limitations, mental limitations, physical limitations as you and I have here on the earth, wouldn't it? I, I can't see how it could be any other way than that. So he's not talking about what he literally saw, physically saw. He did see. He saw the creation. And I have no doubt that when he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father, he retained or regained memories and experiences and and whatever else he would have had before then. I have no doubt of that. But the Bible said he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. And he came to the earth as a man. And in my thinking, that would have to include that. You decide for yourself. But I can't, like I said, I just can't see how it would work any other way. Now, please understand, I'm not saying I've got it all figured out and there's no way that God couldn't do it that my little peanut brain can't figure. Maybe there is. I don't know. But at this point in my spiritual development, I can't see it. So when Jesus says he only does what he sees the Father doing, he's not talking about memories. He's not talking about literally looking over into heaven. He's talking about seeing the Father, seeing the will of the Father here on the earth. Now, if Jesus had to learn who his father was here on the earth, the same way that you and I have to learn who our heavenly father is, and that is through the word, through accepting and believing the word of God, now we're on the same plane. Now I can see why Jesus would say, the same works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do. Because if Jesus had an advantage to do those works, how can he expect us to do the same stuff? Are you out there? So Jesus, back again to to John chapter 5. Jesus said, verse 20, For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things. Now, whether you know this or not, this is a little bit uh, outside of the, the topic. But the Bible says God loves you the same way he loves Jesus. You're a joint heir with him. You're one with him. So God will show you all the things about himself that he showed Jesus. The Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. 
I'm convinced that's understanding of the word, spiritual understanding, so that we can walk in what belongs to us. Showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Turn with me over to verse uh, 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 um. well, look, let's just pick verse 30 out. Jesus is still talking to the Jews, baffling them with the things that he's saying. They have no clue what he's talking about. They just know it makes them mad and it's an indictment against them. Verse 30, Jesus said, I can of mine own self do nothing. Well, that has to mean that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. Because if Jesus is operating on the earth as the son of God, a part of the the triune Godhead, then he has all power. He has all ability. He can do anything that he wants to do. In fact, the Bible says specifically that Jesus is the creator of all things. We look at the creation account and say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says Jesus is the one that did it. God planned it. Jesus did it. And the Holy Spirit was the, the, uh, the executing agent, execu- executor or executive agent to carry it out. Jesus was the power source. He was the, the, the instigator, the creator, the one that did the work. Yet here he's saying, I of my own self can do nothing. He doesn't say I choose not to. He says I can't. That's got to be the power that he laid aside. I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear I judge. In other words, I speak what God tells me to say. Because I seek not mine own will. Please get this phrase. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Now, please notice if you put these verses of Scripture together, Jesus is saying something very simple. He's saying, I'm not the one doing everything. You're mad at me because you think I'm trying to lift up myself, saying God's my Father, and therefore making myself equal with God. I'm not claiming to be anything except the Son of Man. What I do claim is to be sent of the Father. I claim to have seen the revelation of the Father and the Father's will. Therefore, I carry out His will on the earth. Therefore, everything I do, everything I say is according to the will of God, not according to my will. Turn with me over to John 14. John 14. Jesus said in verse uh, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Verse 8, Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. We'll be satisfied if you'll just show us the Father. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Now what is the Bible telling us here? The Bible is telling us something that Jesus has already identified of himself. I don't do anything in and of myself. I'm not the originating agent in my earthly ministry, is what Jesus is saying. I do what I see my Father do. In other words, every step I take, every action that I I carry out, every work that I do is what I know is the will of God here on the earth because I'm not here to do my will. Everything I do is the will of the Father. And the Father loves me and therefore he shows me all the things that he does. So Jesus is making two statements, if you'll allow me to summarize. He's saying he only does the things that are the will of the Father. And he's saying everything that the Father wills is done in me. In other words, very simply this. This is the whole point I'm trying to get to. Jesus is saying this. If you see me do it, you know that it's God's will. If you don't see me do it, it's not the will of God. Let 
Everything he did was the will of God. And nothing was left out of God's will that Jesus did. Or that Jesus didn't do. In other words, there was no part of God's will that was omitted by Jesus. He only does the will of the Father. Now, Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what Jesus said about himself and his earthly ministry still holds true today. He only does the will of the Father. And there's nothing of God's will that's left out of what Jesus does or did. Now, can I ask you a question? Did Jesus ever tell anybody that they were sick because God wanted them to be sick? Then it can't be the will of God then or today. Did Jesus ever tell anybody that this sickness has given you or this tragedy has come upon you because it's the plan of God for your life? Then it's impossible for that to be the will of God then or today. Yeah, but turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is a, is a problem for a lot of people. We'll start in verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Please notice what the disciples understand. They understand that sin is the connection to sickness. What they don't know is whether it's the individual's sin or whether it's the parent's sin. Jesus answered, here's Jesus' answer, verse 3, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, period. Their question is, whose sin caused this man to be blind? Is it the individual sin, the man that was born blind? Well, you've got a question you have to answer here, and that is how could the man cr- cause his own blindness because when he was born blind? How could he sin? What is he going to do, sin in the womb? Jesus very simply answers the question. There's not some big theological discussion. They ask a simple question. Jesus gives them a simple answer. Their question is, whose sin caused the problem? Is it the individual sin or is it the parent's sin? Jesus said, neither one. Well, now they're smart enough to know that sickness is the result of sin. So if the answer in this case is neither the man's sin, the individual sin, nor the parent's sin, then whose sin caused the problem? And folks, that's real simple. The sin that caused the problem was Adam's sin. The Bible says through one man's sin, trespass, sin, death passed upon all men. Death passed upon all men. Sickness is a part of spiritual death. It's one of the results, it's one of the consequences of the original sin in the Garden of Eden. You remember in the, the, the Genesis account of creation, it says that God made the earth in six days. At the, and, uh, on the seventh day, he rested. Look that uh, scripture up, that verse up in other translations. You'll find out that it says a lot of things, a lot of different ways. But basically, it comes down to this. The literal Hebrew words mean this. He made an end of everything that he made. In other words, anything that God creates has got to be created in those six days, those first six days, or else God didn't make it. He put an end to his creation process. On day seven. Now at the end of the sixth day. He looked around and he said. This is very good. Well which day was sickness made? If sickness is of God. If God created sickness. Which day was it that he made it on? The Genesis account tells us. Everything that he made on day one. Two, three, four, five and six. And sickness is never in there. In fact sickness was not present. There was nothing that could hurt man. 
There's nothing that could create man any pain, any discomfort, any problems whatsoever. In fact, God created the earth. In the Genesis account, God created the earth to be like heaven. Because Jesus tells us, we've already referred to the Lord's Prayer. What's called the Lord's Prayer is really the disciples' prayer. But we've already referred to that where Jesus said, pray that the will of God would be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. God made the Garden of Eden after the pattern in heaven. And the Bible says that in heaven there's nothing that can hurt or destroy or cause man any pain or whatsoever in any way whatsoever. That's the way the earth was until Adam sinned. Then once Adam sinned, we know that a curse came upon not only the man but also the woman and also the earth. That's when spiritual death began to rule and reign over mankind. That's when sickness came on the scene. That's when thorns and thistles started coming up from the earth. That's when there was a curse, uh, a conflict and a curse between the woman and, and Satan. That's when there was a conflict and a curse between the man and Satan. That's when man began, began to be subject to physical decay, which is what sickness does. It decays the body. That's when the, the perfect creation, that's what it means when God said he looked at it after six days and said it's very good. That's when the perfect, the perfection of creation entered into imperfection. Man became subject to germs and disease and, and bacteria and all kinds of things. But it was because of sin, not because God made it that way. Sickness is not of God. If sickness was of God, where would he get it to make it from? Or where would he get the raw materials to make it from? There's none in heaven. How could he make sickness? He can't. Because the Bible says God is only good. You'd have to pervert and twist the the scripture to come up with some kind of uh, saying that sickness would have to be good on occasion in order for God to make it. The problem with that is, is in Acts 10, 38, it's talking about Peter's talking about Jesus' ministry on the earth. He said, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good, not making people sick, but healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Acts 10.38 says healing is always good. And it says the sickness is always demonic oppression. In other words, the consequence of spiritual death. So Jesus answers the question. Neither. He answers, he answers the question they asked. We went further in our explanation. But he, asked, he answers their question. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Now in the original Greek, there is neither upper nor lower case lettering. Neither is there any punctuation. The translators put the punctuation in. They put the upper and the lowercase lettering in when they translated from uh, Greek to English for uh, along with the scripture references and so forth for our uh, benefit to help us uh, for reference sake. But any translation is subject to two things and that is the translator's knowledge of God and the knowledge of the language that the translation comes from. And in most cases the translators did a real good job But if the translators think that God causes people to be sick, then that's going to affect the translation that comes out. So literally, the verse says this, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Now, if the translators are are, um, qualified by their knowledge of God and knowledge of the language, then we ought to be qualified through our knowledge of God, at least, and the knowledge of the English language that we have to change the errors that may be in punctuation. I believe the punctuation should very simply be this. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, period. Now Jesus has gone to another thought. The only thing they ask is who sinned. 
Jesus answers, neither the man nor the parents. Now Jesus goes to another thought. And here's the thought about his works, which are always predicated on the will of the Father. He said, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, comma, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, period. The night comes when no man is it can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, I grew up in a Baptist church, a denominational church. And this scripture, whenever it was used in Sunday school or whatever, it was always used in, in some form like this. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, comma, but he's blind because God needed somebody for Jesus to heal when he came down the road. The problem with that is it's contrary to the character and the nature of God as revealed by the word. It could never be God's will for anybody to be sick because Jesus never said that it was the will of God for anyone to be sick. And he's already identified by his own words that there's no part of God's will that he left out and didn't reveal to us. So this idea that maybe through the thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people that Jesus ministered to while he was here on the earth, John said himself, if the world, if the, everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. So that has to mean that there are numerous, maybe thousands of accounts of healing that aren't recorded. If the Holy Ghost left out an occasion where Jesus told somebody that it was the will of God for them to be sick, and didn't give us a record of it, then he did us a disservice and an injustice. It would be a lie. So the idea that things are different now than they used to be contradicts everything Jesus said about doing the will of the Father. Poor old Jesus. God had to plan somebody to be born blind so that there'd be a sick person available. Wasn't that magnanimous of him? No, it's contrary to the will and the nature of God as revealed in the scripture. So Jesus said, neither is this man sin nor his parents, period. Next thought, next point. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. Now let me ask you a question. If you have doubts about this, if you have a concern about, well, maybe that's not what it means. Maybe we're doing a disservice to the scripture, putting our own punctuation in there and changing the the, the way the verse uh, scripture is structured, verse, uh, verses are structured or whatever. Let me ask you this. Jesus is very simply saying, I only do the works of the Father. Here he's saying that he's going to do the works of the Father. If you want to know what the works of the Father is, whether making him sick or healing him, all you have to look and do, all you have to do is look and see what Jesus did. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do the works of the Father. Well, if he's already done the works, if God already did the work of making this man blind, if Jesus undoes that work, then he's working contrary to the will of God, not in concert with it. Which means Jesus lied in chapter 5. Are you out there? See, folks, this stuff has to fit together, not according to our religious doctrine or our uh, ideas, church ideas. It has to fit together according to truth. And the only way it fits together is Jesus very simply saying this. This man is, is blind because of Adam's original sin. But I'm here to do the works of God and heal him. That's the only way it fits. The only way it fits. So Jesus, when he had thus spoken, verse 6, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay and said unto him, go wash in the pool of Siloam which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. 
So what work did Jesus do? Did he make him blind? Did he comfort him because he was blind? Because it was the will of God to be done in his life? No, he healed him. He broke the power of sickness over him. What can we conclude then from this scripture? And and we could take all night long and go through every scriptural reference concerning healing. What can we conclude therefore? It's got to be the will of God for all to be healed. It can never be the will of God for someone to be sick. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you're forgetting one very, very important scripture. Do you know which one it is? The verse of scripture that says God chastens those that he loves. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, because we don't use King James English much in our daily vocabulary, a lot of times people don't recognize that that's what the devil is saying when he tells them, whispers in their ear, brings the thought to their mind that God has some plan or purpose in the sickness or the tragedy that's taking place in someone's life. They don't realize, they may not not be familiar enough with the scripture to know that what they're saying, what the devil is saying is God is chastening you or teaching you through this problem, through this sickness, through this disease, through this tragedy. Notice what Paul told Timothy. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. One translation says valuable. Several translations say valuable. But it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished everybody say thoroughly furnished thoroughly furnished unto all good works now here's what this scripture is saying the scripture is saying very simply this paul is telling timothy god uses scripture to teach you to instruct you in doctrine to correct you to reprove you so that you may be perfectly furnished Thoroughly taught, thoroughly instructed, thoroughly corrected, thoroughly proved. And God does that one and only one way. The only thing the Bible ever says God uses is scripture. Notice what verse 17 does not say. It does not say that so through scripture and sickness a man may be perfected and taught. Notice it does not say that through scripture and tragedy coming to his life he shall learn whatever he needs to know. Now, do you see this word instruction where it says um, uh, all scripture, verse 13, is given by inspiration of God? Uh, literally, in the, in the original scripture, it says this. All scripture is God-breathed. You need to realize, folks, you don't read, just read your Bible. That's God speaking to you. And when you take that attitude, it'll carry a greater weight in your life. The scripture is God speaking to you. It's God-breathed. It's not somebody that just came up with the idea. It's God breathed and he spoke through the mouths of men or the writings of men. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The scripture is profitable for doctrine. That means teaching for reproof. That means evidence for correction. I can't read my own writing. What does the word correction mean? Let me look it up in the, in the thing. For correction, the word correction means 
a straightening up again, rectification, for the notice the fourth word, instruction in righteousness. The word instruction is a word that's translated chasten. In other words, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12. I'll show you this as I tell you. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's start in verse 6. Now, back up to verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Here's the exhortation, the Old Testament scripture that he's quoting. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. That's the word instruction. Whom the Lord loves, he instructs. Now, we think of chastening as being punishment. It just means instruction. Now, you instruct and discipline your children, don't you? Does anybody try to make them sick? Would you consider yourself a good parent if you tried to give cancer to your kids? Tried to make them get the flu so they learned a lesson? That's child abuse, isn't it? God's not a child abuser. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. How does chastening come? Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 said the chastening comes to the word. In other words, if you receive the instruction of the word, then God will deal with you as sons. In other words, it's the word of God that causes you to mature. Not sickness and disease, not tragedy, not trouble in your life. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. In other words, he's saying, if you don't accept the teaching of the word, you're not a true son of God. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. Notice correction is chastening. And we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they, earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after, our, after their own pleasure. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of holiness. Anybody ever made, been made more holy through sickness or disease? I have never seen somebody come that was sick that had a love God attitude because they've been sick for so long I've seen people frustrated I've seen people say why won't God heal me I've seen people say Pastor Mike can you do something to help me which is kind of interesting too because if they really believe that God has put this sickness on them why are they trying to get out from under it if sickness is a good thing and leads us in it makes, makes us a protector of holiness shouldn't you be praying for a double dose of sickness Well, yeah, if you're going to operate logically, of course, nobody will do that. Because we know, instinctively, we know sickness is a terrible thing. It robs us. It doesn't add to us. It takes away from us. It takes away enjoyment. It takes away life. It's not a good thing. It never is a good thing. That's why Jesus never said to anybody, according to the will of God, be sick. Verse 11, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. What does that? Conforming to the word. Not conforming to tragedy. Not accepting tragedy. 
I've seen so many people that have gone through their lives and they've wondered why God brought this on me or whatever and they never get past the tragedy that may have happened 20 years before. They're still identifying with this terrible thing that happened because they think God did it and they can't figure out why. They can't figure out what they did to deserve this terrible thing that happened. Whether it be sickness or some other type of of, um, uh, tragic circumstance. But you put the word in there. You understand that the chastising that God does because he loves us is through the word. And it's the word that causes us to be perfect or perfected, thoroughly furnished for all good works. Then it makes perfect sense. God's not punishing his children. He's showing you the word to change for your own good. But sometimes that hurts. Because the word, for example, the word says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, that doesn't literally mean pop your eyeball out. But it means if you're looking at things that hinders your spiritual growth and development, cut that off. Well, the Bible talks about the pleasure of sin. There is a pleasure of sin, pleasure in sin for a season. It, it hurts to cut things away. It hurts our flesh to give up things that we enjoy. The Bible says not to be an overeater. Man, I like overeating. Don't you? Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Lord. I like eating things that aren't good for me. And I can always see the effect in my body. And so I know I have to change that. I have to cut that out. Man, that's tough. Because these are sometimes things that we enjoy. Same thing's true with sins. Good example of that are people that get addicted to substances, different alcohol or substances or stuff like that. Their body craves it. It's tough to quit. Because their body still wants it. But the word says to cut that off. It doesn't say to pray for somebody to cast the devil out of you. It says to cut those uh, desires of the flesh away. Crucify the flesh. Doesn't it? That can be just as tough as something physical. That can be just as tough as some sickness or disease or some tragedy. That's what Paul's talking about when he writes to the Hebrews. He says nobody enjoys being corrected by the word. When you have to cut off things that your body enjoys. But it works for you an eternal weight of glory. So all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. Finally turn with me over to uh, to, uh, Acts chapter 14. Let me close with this. I understand that tonight's message may be a little heady. Maybe a little headier than what we're uh, accustomed to. But it's good to think these things through and to realize what you believe and what you stand for. It's good to be equipped with the knowledge of what the Bible says so that when the devil comes, he can't trip you up or trick you. Amen. Acts chapter 14. Uh, Let's start in, uh, well, we'll just start in verse 1. Read down through about verse 10. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together, this is Paul and Barnabas, into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a multitude both of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. These guys, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas was the main speaker at the time. He was a real eloquent speaker and Paul was not. He was the, the, considered the leader of the two because he had been in it longer and had a greater gift, at least for public speaking. They went right into the middle of the Jewish synagogue. And, and taught so that both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, I guess these are Gentile proselytes, 
Jewish proselytes, people that are Gentiles would have converted to Judaism. Both Jews and Greeks believed. Now think about that. He changed people's lifelong beliefs. These two changed people's lifelong beliefs through the preaching of the word. They were especially gifted for this type of task. They knew what Jews believed. They knew where they came from. They knew what they had to change about their thinking and their believing to accept Jesus instead of the law of Moses. They knew exactly how to talk to these people. And it caused a lot of them to turn to faith in Jesus. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. The unbelievers decided we've got to get rid of these people. Same thing that happened with Jesus. The Jews wanted to kill him. Now they want to kill Paul and Barnabas. Long time therefore abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Please notice that God confirmed the word with signs following. He confirmed the truth of who Jesus is, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish law, the law of Moses, through the sacrifice of Jesus, with signs and wonders being done. I wonder if God's run out of signs and wonders. Or maybe as some say, it's not the age or the day of signs and wonders anymore. Folks, it never was about the day for signs and wonders. It's about the God of signs and wonders. And he's the same. He hadn't changed a bit. So they're doing signs and wonders now, proving that what they're saying about Jesus is true. Verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided. Please notice that signs and wonders didn't convince everybody. The multitude of the city is still divided. You You still have people that are hanging on to their belief in the law of Moses for their own purposes, in spite of signs and wonders being done in their midst. In spite of cripples being healed, sick people being healed, whatever the signs and wonders were, it doesn't specify, but you've got to imagine that that would be included, I would guess. Whatever they were, these signs and wonders are not convincing people because they've decided we're not going to believe this no matter what. It's so funny to me that some people say, well, if God just showed me a sign, then I'd believe. Folks, if you won't believe without a sign, you wouldn't believe with one. Because believing is a choice. Not the result of what you see or don't see. Verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided. And part held with the Jews. And part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made. Both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews. With their rulers. To use them despitefully and to stone them. They were aware of it. And fled into Lystra and Derbe. Now let me ask you a question. I, I get amused sometimes with some people. That think that, that our authority in, in Christ. And authority in the name of Jesus. Is just unlimited. And it works at the drop of a hat. And you just snap your fingers and do whatever you want to do. Why didn't these guys stand. Call fire down from heaven on the unbelievers. Like Elijah did. When the captains of the army. Came to get him. And stand their ground and prove to them. That God was on their side. Clearly we know that they know how to hear from God. Because of the results. And the fruit of their ministry so far. So far. Wouldn't you agree? So what action did they take? They ran to get out of town. Sometimes the Holy Ghost might impress upon you or direct you to stand and fight. Other times the Holy Ghost will say, get out of here. I have to believe they were as led of the Holy Ghost to flee into Lystra and Derby as they were to go into the city and do signs and wonders to begin with. Wouldn't you think so? 
They were aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and under the region that lies round about. Never been there before. First time into the cities. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Born lame. The fact that it says he's a man indicates that he's in his 30s. Because that's what people considered manhood, not... Uh, uh, well, there's, there's two aspects of manhood. One is the equivalent of the Jewish bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah where man, uh, young boys are recognized as part of the family. But real manhood is accepted to be at 30 years of age, and that's why Jesus started his ministry at 30. So the fact that the Bible identifies him as a man would indicate or imply that he's around 30 or so years of age. He's been crippled all of his life. There sat a man at Lystra, a certain man at Lystra, impotent at his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked, the same heard Paul speak. First time he ever heard him speak. First time Paul's ever preached in this town. The same heard Paul speak, who, speaking of the crippled man, steadfastly, or I'm sorry, speaking to Paul, who steadfastly beholding him, the crippled man, and perceiving that he, the crippled man, had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Folks, I want you to understand the power that's in the word of God when somebody will simply accept it as truth. It does not say this guy came to Paul's services day after day after day and when he finally learned enough, then he got a miracle. We've got the idea, and, I, and I'm sure it's just listening to the devil or looking at experience. We've gotten the idea that it's so hard to get God to move in our lives. And it's not. It just simply takes faith. Paul preached one time what the Holy Ghost identifies as the gospel and it produced faith to be healed in this guy's life. Now Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So it, it's impossible for him to have faith to be healed if healing wasn't presented through Paul's preaching as part of the gospel. See, a lot of people in the modern-day church will say that, that Paul preached the gospel, so that means he told about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Well, he may have included that. I'm sure he did. But if he, the man had faith to be healed, then that means Paul had to be preaching healing too. Otherwise, there's no basis for faith to be pr produced in the man's life, evident in the man's life. He's got to be preaching healing. So what's he doing? In my opinion, he's preaching Jesus on the cross and everything that he did through his shed blood. Not only redemption from spiritual death, redemption from poverty, but also redemption from sickness. And the man simply believed it. Simply believed it. Simply believed it. Now, folks, put yourself in his position. He's got 30 years of experience to tell him it can't be this easy. Doesn't he? He's got his whole life. Don't you know he's tried other things to get healed? Maybe he's been to the temples of other gods. Maybe he's cried out to an unknown God. Surely he hasn't spent his 30 years of life without seeking out some means of relief for his crippled condition. I just can't imagine that. I just can't fathom that. I don't know it for sure, but I just can't fathom that. Can you? What would you do? Man, I'd be looking for anything and everything I could. If I heard about healing waters, I'd be going for healing waters. 
I heard about healing stones to place on my legs, I'd be putting healing stones on my legs. I'd be trying anything and everything I could possibly try. Wouldn't you? Well, in my thinking then, that means he's tried and failed. Any number of times. Because nothing else works. Whatever hope he might have gained through hearing about somebody else's situation or some other thing, some other miracle cure or some other thing that somebody was touting hadn't worked. But he simply chooses to believe what Paul said about Jesus to be true. Jesus is the Messiah. He shed perfect, sinless blood for the redemption of mankind spirit soul and body and the man just simply accepted it paul saw that he had faith to be healed you know what that says to me that says to me that the man wasn't aware of his own faith but paul saw it paul saw that he had faith to be healed he perceived that he had faith to be healed i don't know if he saw it on his face i don't know if he perceived it in the spirit i don't know exactly how paul knew but paul looked at this guy and knew this guy has faith to be healed So he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man jumped, leaped, and walked. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Faith in Jesus will do the same thing today that it did for him. God didn't cause your problem. If sickness has come against you, no matter what the devil is telling you, no matter what religion has spoken to you, God didn't cause your problem. But here's the truth that we know for sure. It's always the will of God to heal because Jesus always healed. Even in situations where Jesus had to tweak what somebody believed, he did it simply and then delivered healing. If Jesus won't do the same thing for you that he did for him, these other people as recorded in his gospels, then the Bible's alive when it says Jesus is the same today. Easiest thing the world to receive from Jesus. Easiest thing in the world. Just accept the Bible account to be true. It's always the will of God to be healed. That's something that has to sink in to some people because the church has taught so differently for so long. And if that's something you have a problem with, I would suggest to you that you start saying to you, it's God's will for me to be healed. You start saying that enough, it'll dawn on you. It'll drop down on the inside of you. Jesus always did the will of the Father. And he always healed. Never turned one away. If he didn't turn anybody away in his earthly ministry and he turns you away now, that means he's not the same. So he won't turn you away either. Start saying, it's God's will for me to be well. Start saying to yourself, over and over and over, it's God's will for me to be well. According to the scripture, it's God's will for me to be well. That's what I found to be the number one hindrance in people receiving Because they've been so indoctrinated by church teaching for so many years that sometimes it's God's will for people to be sick and sometimes God teaches you through sickness or tragedy or whatever the case is. That's a tough hurdle to jump for a lot of people. I think we need to be honest enough with ourselves to realize if that's our problem, if that's an issue for me, I need to overcome that by putting the right thing, putting the truth in my heart and begin to say, God wants me well. Jesus said, I always do the will of my Father, and he always healed. 
he furthermore said, there's nothing the Father does that I don't do. So it can never be the will of God for anybody to stay sick. Because that's not what Jesus ever did. He showed you the complete will of the Father in the area of healing. Let's pray.